The grace of God and His peace, His love, and His mercy be upon you on this Sunday of the baptism of our Lord, through Jesus Christ, amen. Let us pray before I get going. Dear Lord, be with all people here and those who could not make it today. Help us to hear the word and to focus on you and to be rejuvenated this new year by your word and your spirit. In your name we pray, amen. Have you ever thought what you're up against during the sermon? Lane Sebring has thought about it. He's an author and preaching consultant, and he outlines four things which compete for your attention at this moment. One is all the world's information is held in your hands, and it's not your Bible. With your smartphones, you can access so much information, so much entertainment, so much communication that you can pay zero attention to me. But you don't have to have a device in your hands to pay zero attention to me. You've got plenty within you to do that. You can perceive me and what I'm saying as utterly irrelevant in your life. You may not be hostile about it, and you may not be vocal about it either. But it could be written all over your face, and your lives attest to it because you remain unchanged. Mr. Sebring also says that you're bored, and I have to say something interesting to keep your attention. And if it matters to me that you're bored, then I have to up my game a little bit. <laughs> and some do not accept the Bible as true and don't care that what I say is God's word or that the church says that it, that it is. They've made up their minds, and because what one feels makes it true for them. All this, according to an expert in the field of preaching across all denominations. But you know, you don't have to be an expert to know that there's no shortage of options to what you may have running in your mind while the minister preaches. And I'm willing to bet that one of them is not the reality that Jesus Christ has put himself in your place. This isn't to say that he's done the things that you and I have done or thought the things that you and I have thought or are thinking right now. See, from the time Jesus started attending synagogue when he was a young boy, he wasn't up against the distractions of having a comic book or a toy in his hands while the rabbi was reading the Torah. He wasn't up against his own apathy or lack of interest in what was being taught and proclaimed in the synagogue by the, the elders. He wasn't up against his, his own boredom with religion because of his lack of faith or belief or that it wasn't true. He didn't take our place in that sense. But he did empty himself of his own righteousness and clothe us with it. Jesus has put himself in your place so that in your baptism you are put in his place. This is what Jesus means for Christians, sinners all. God gives up what is his and takes upon himself what is ours, namely our sin. Now, I only started this message with Sebring's four distractions during a sermon as a springboard, you know, a topic starter. I know you're not on your smartphones right now. 
That would be rude and disrespectful if you were. Even if you didn't believe a word I said had any relevance in your life or that it was true. You know, perhaps in a megachurch, you know, where you could sit 30 rows back and the minister can't see what you're, you're doing, you wouldn't be noticed. But all those distractions aside, it remains there is something up against you and me right now. Allow me to up the game a little and remind you that the enemy constantly prowls the, this earth to destroy you, your friends, and your family. He sought to destroy Jesus the moment he was born. And we've already been through that last Sunday with Herod and Jesus' narrow escape to Egypt. But that wouldn't be the only time. The enemy would try to get him again after his baptism by his cousin John. And coming out alive after 40 days in the desert, he would be pursued again by the Jewish religious leaders. He would be destroyed one day. But remember, I said there's been an exchange. The exchange began at the river that runs from Galilee to the Dead Sea. Jesus finds his cousin John there in the water, baptizing people. And we have no idea if they knew each other in their childhood or in their 20s. If you remember, if you were here that, that Sunday, Mary spent three months visiting John's mother Elizabeth while she was pregnant. You'd think that they, that they would visit each other again after they both had their children, wouldn't you? You know, like, let's get John and Jesus together for a play date or something. They're cousins, or whatever the relation was. Not even a yearly visit? Who knows? But by this time in our gospel reading, there's no doubt that John is well-known, and Jesus seems to have been forgotten. What happened in the 18 or so years from the time Jesus amazed people with his knowledge of the scriptures at 12 years old to the time he showed up at the river? What happened? John and the voice of God himself had to remind everyone who Jesus was. Jesus seems like an unknown here. The shepherd's message from the angels on Christmas night doesn't seem to have stuck among the people of Palestine. Nevertheless, people are coming to John by the droves seeking baptism. They're seeking the kingdom of God and the forgiveness of sin because they've heard about it. And John's been telling the people, there is one coming who is more important than me. As you heard, John tried to prevent Jesus from being baptized because he believed it wasn't for him. The Lamb of God who is coming into the world doesn't need preparing for himself. But Jesus chooses to begin his ministry by becoming one of those who come to John seeking baptism for forgiveness. He puts himself in their place. Jesus joins sinners in the muddy Jordan water to do what they are unable, unable to do for themselves, to fulfill all righteousness. You and I are unable to fulfill all righteousness. Why would we want Him to fulfill all righteousness in our place? Why would we want to? Why would we want Him to? What's the big deal? 
to avoid an endless tormenting death. That's what. If an endless tormenting death is what you want, man, you got a problem. And if you believe that that isn't, if that, that isn't even a thing, you've got even bigger problems. All of us, just like John, need forgiveness for thinking badly of people, treating them badly, talking about them badly behind their backs, scheming against others, either to get their stuff or just to make things go their own way, and for treating ourselves badly, believing, I don't know, all kinds of things. God doesn't care about me. Forgiveness is not for me. I'm not worthy enough or I'm not good enough. I don't need the, the, the opposite end is, I, I'm too good. I don't need forgiveness. Again, you know, the options in our mind are endless. Jesus has done this exchange, being perfect in our place, and taking onto himself our horrendous treatment of others and ourselves. The exchange started with John at the river and is completed when, when Jesus dies on the cross outside Jerusalem. The sinless one bears the sin of the world. And man, that's got to be a lot of sin. The benefits of this wonderful exchange continue for you today, even as the dark forces of the enemy are up against you, even at this moment. Your baptism, even though it was a one-time rite, and you may not even remember the experience, is working for you. And against those dark forces every day, Every minute, every second, it's a continual washing away of your horrible treatment to someone else or yourself. God has impossibly high standards, you see. One of them is you treat another, one of his created children, badly. You even think about hurting them. Death to you. Wow. <laughs> that seems harsh, doesn't it? That's a harsh consequence which seems to us like a little over the top God right I mean come on you know we humans treat each other badly all the time it's just it's just life it's just what we do we'll get over it well I don't know about you but I can remember almost every instance in which I was treated badly by someone especially during childhood and when I treated someone badly it's not normal it's not good. It's just not what we do as humans. It's wrong, and we know it because, well, it sticks with you. There's just something about it. But when you have faith and you believe that Jesus saves, those horrible things are not held against you, even though they would condemn you before God. Jesus put himself in your place and assumed those sins onto himself even though he's not the one who committed them. And as a result, you get what he has. You get, in God's eyes, the quality of being good, decent, virtuous, upright, worthy, morally acceptable, pure, noble, ethical, honest, saintly, irreproachable, pious, innocent, 
just, and holy. Phew, does that sound like you? <laughs> it, it doesn't sound like me, that's for sure. But you are those things because Jesus has given them to you and made you to be those qualities. Qualities that were originally intended for the human race but were ruined by Adam. In your baptism, that old Adam was drowned and killed and a new person was raised up with Jesus at his resurrection. It's the baptism of Jesus that we first see this wonderful exchange. God's Son takes our place so that in baptism we are the Father's beloved children again, restored as it were, as in the beginning in Eden. And as we move along towards an early April Easter, we'll follow Jesus from the river here to the, to the road in to Jerusalem where this wonderful exchange that he's made for you is completed. So stay with us and don't let the things that are up against you cause you to miss out. And may the peace of God which surpasses all human understanding keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus.